If you have your Bible this morning, I hope you do, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm preaching what I'm sure will go down as my least favorite sermon I've ever preached this morning. Um, And so not to build it up and get you too excited about it, but uh, this is not a sermon that pastors love to preach on. Contrary to popular belief, this is not a sermon that I enjoy preaching on. And there are some pastors who love the idea of politics and love to stand before the pulpit and preach about politics. And I'm going to go ahead and let you know we are not preaching politics this morning. But we are going to preach the Word of God and what it says about God, politics, and His bride, the church, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Tomorrow is President's Day. Uh, Most of you know it's President's Day because kids are out of school or maybe you have an abbreviated different work schedule of some sort or uh, there's a national holiday so you can't go to the banks or whatever it might be. You know of the holiday, but what do you do to celebrate President's Day? This isn't a convicting question. It's really, I, I started thinking, what do we do other than have an adjusted schedule? I mean, I know at Christmas time we have traditions. We gather for maybe Christmas Eve service and we have Christmas Eve dinner and you wake up Christmas morning and of, of course you celebrate the birth of Christ and there's meaning behind God coming down to earth. At Thanksgiving we have a, a big feast, a big meal and, and you're expressing how thankful you are for the way God has blessed you. You know what to do at Easter or at Halloween or 4th of July. You you have all of these holidays that you understand this is what we do. And then comes a holiday like President's Day. And I'm not exactly sure what our traditions are supposed to be on President's Day. I've never had any traditions on President's Day. You know, as I read some things, the one tradition that reoccurred and everything was apparently on President's Day we're supposed to eat cherry pie. Did you know this, Hannah? We're supposed to eat cherry pie tomorrow. So, how many of you all have your cherry pie ready for President's Day tomorrow? Anybody? I didn't know there was such a tradition. It's supposed to remind us on on George Washington's birthday, which really is what President's Day started out as. Uh, George Washington is the man who famously and probably falsely, but it's a good story anyways, chopped down the cherry tree and then had to confess it to his father because he cannot tell a lie. And so we're supposed to eat cherry pie on President's Day. What are we supposed to do? So I've decided I couldn't find a, here's what you do to celebrate President's Day, other than find something to do with your kids who are at home from school, right? I've decided that on President's Day tomorrow, and I may forget this next year, but tomorrow I'm going to spend the day praying for my president. I think that's an appropriate thing to do. I'm not only going to spend the day praying for my president, I'm going to spend the day praying for my senators and my Congress, my my representatives. I, I want to spend the day praying for my my country. I want to spend the day praying for those in government who I agree with and disagree with, that they would make godly, wise decisions. And can I tell you, in 2020, that prayer is needed more than I think it has ever been needed in our country's history. So I don't know what your traditions are. After you have your piece of cherry pie for breakfast in the morning, right? can you spend just a short amount of time saying, Lord, I want to lift up to you my government officials, and particularly on President's Day, I want to pray for my president. Now, this morning's message is right along those lines. This is not something we should do just on a specific holiday, but 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, actually tell us specifically that this ought to be a regular practice. So read with me in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, And then I want to study what Scripture tells us about the political nature of our country. 
in what it doesn't tell us about the political nature of our country. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. That's a great way to start. But verse 2 gets very specific. Prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way if you're looking for a prayer tomorrow or even this afternoon to pray for our government leaders this is a great prayer Uh, father i pray that you would guide them so that we may lead peaceful and a quiet life godly and dignified in every way verses three and four this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of god our savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth if you're looking for something else to pray for our government officials the ones you are confident in and the ones you aren't confident in, pray that God's will of salvation would be done in their lives. Pray, Lord, they're not making godly decisions and there's no evidence of fruit of salvation in their lives. Maybe they're even passing laws completely against your word. Lord, change your heart before they change the law. This is God's will for all people and according to verse 2, specifically for us to pray for kings and all those in high positions. This morning, I do want to talk about how God wants us to interact in a political nation. I want to give a couple of caveats. I'm actually going to share some myths here in just a moment. I'm going to start off by saying this. I'm determined, and I, Lord, help me not to mess this up. I'm determined not to mention a specific, a specific political party for the entire message. Because this is not a message about politics. I'm also convinced that Scripture does not tell us directly how to vote. And we're going to share that here in just a moment. It tells us what things to value and to vote on, but it does not give us specific instructions. There are no political parties mentioned, no American political parties mentioned anywhere in Scripture. You can't find them. And so as we do this, this is not a, hey, this November would be a good thing to remember these principles, uh, or this is how you should vote, or what you should do. This is a, Lord, how am I to interact with my culture? Or what do you want me to do in my nation? How am I supposed to live? And what are some things I need to repent of? I want to begin by sharing just three myths. And these aren't in your bulletin, but if you take notes, you can jot them kind of on the side if you want, or if you have a notepad, you can write these three myths down. And so I want to start by just clarifying so that we're not confused about God's word. Myth number one, the church should stay out of politics. That's a lie that we've been fed. You've heard of the phrase separation of church and state. I'm not up here to give you a history lesson on where that phrase came from, but it is not in our constitution. It's in some letters that have been written back and forth between some of the founding fathers. It is not something that we're legally obligated to. And the principle is not even that the church shouldn't impact our government. It's that our government and the church should not be the same thing. And the history of that came out of this. For all of human history, there have been times that the church has sinfully intertwined itself with the government. And it has always ended bad early emperor of Rome converted to Christianity and mandated that everyone in Rome be Christians and Christianity suffered because of it. 
for the, the peak years of Christian Catholicism, before there was anything but one church, you and I would have been Catholic in this period. They became so intertwined with the nations around them that they, not single-handedly, but significantly contributed to what we know as the Dark Ages. Because the church and the government were manipulative and intertwined. Our own nation comes out of a country that at the time had the Anglican church and the government as one unified body and would not allow any other sort of free worship of God's word. And as they manipulated scripture, godly men stood up and said, I will not stand by and watch God's word be ignored. And they came to America, founded a nation, not that said the church shouldn't influence politics, but one that said the church and politicians should not be the same thing. So the myth that the church should stay out of politics, the assumption that that you don't have a responsibility in shaping our country because you're a Christian or attend the church is crazy. It's a myth. Myth number two, political issues are all black and white. If you write this down, underline the word all, okay? I heard a, a really good sermon just yesterday that actually changed some of my sermon this morning by a man named Jonathan Lehman. He was at a a conference called Together for the Gospel last year. And he described political issues from a biblical point of view as either straight-line issues or jagged-line issues. And I thought this was very helpful. There are some issues that are straight-line issues. In other words, you can take the Bible and draw a straight line to the issue at hand. For instance, murder is sin. We read that in the Bible. Abortion is murder. We know that. Therefore, there's a straight line between what the Bible says and the fact that abortion is sin. We can see that clearly. Straight line issue. That is something we should see as black and white, understand what God's word says, and stand up for what is right. But there are many, many other political issues that are not straight line issues. They are what Jonathan Lehman described as jagged line issues. Things like health care. Now, I'm not getting into all the details of health care, but mature, responsible Christians can come to very different conclusions. You can start to argue from Scripture, and rightly so, that that it is important that we take care of the downtrodden and and those who cannot uh, care for themselves. We ought to, as the church, and maybe even as a people, be caring for them. You can also draw a line that says, Scripture clearly teaches that when the government gets involved in godly issues and, or, or, or gets involved in, in these type issues, that then people suffer because they don't have the freedoms to, to choose. You can also draw a line that says, we ought to be caring for people, or these people ought to be caring for people. And all of a sudden, you get your line, and it's all over the map. There's no straight line direction. And so godly people can disagree with this heartily. And one of them may be right, one of them may be wrong, they both may be wrong, or they both may have truth and right to them. Unfortunately, we have decided that all political issues that we're passionate about are black and white, straight-line issues. And that's a myth. God does not want us to misuse his word so much that we take a verse and draw a straight line where God never intended it to be drawn. What I found is that even some straight line issues, such as abortion, we all agree on our straight line, it is sin, but but where the line becomes jagged is not in the sinfulness of abortion, but how do we overcome it? The strategies, and there are some who say, let's start putting restrictions, and others who say that's not enough, it's all or nothing, and we can have a healthy debate over the best way even to conquer a straight line issue. 
So can we admit this morning that we have bought into a lie that we need to set aside that all political issues are biblically black and white? The ones that are, the church should stand firmly on. You as a believer should stand firmly on. You should speak out against. But the ones that we manipulate, we need to confess and say, Lord, help me to understand what your word is teaching me. Third myth before we get into the meat of the message is that Christians are obligated to vote for one party. By the way, I've heard this on both major political parties from both sides. I've seen how can you be a Christian and vote fill in the blank and how can you be a Christian and vote the opposite. I've seen that on both directions. A true Christian would understand the godly straight line principles and would always vote this. And on the flip side, a true Christian would have a love for people so much so that they would always vote that. Can I tell you, it is a lie that you have an obligation to vote according to party lines. No, you have an obligation to vote against biblical conscience. That's what you have an obligation for. So to to think that there is one specific political direction that all Christians must align with is, is just not true. Now, can I admit to you this morning without specifying that I believe wholeheartedly that there are some issues that transcend all other voting patterns, that I have no clear conscience, and by the way, you should not have a clear conscience either in voting for issues, and therefore, often I find myself voting to one specific side. But that is not because the Bible says, thou shalt vote. It's because the Bible says, thou shalt live. So this morning, as we put these myths aside, we need to ask ourselves a question. What does the Bible tell us to do and what does it tell us not to do when it comes to our government and our sphere of politics? And can I say this morning, this is a hard message for me, a really hard message for me. And so as we study this together, I've got six verses that we're going to read. I'll be jumping around, so you may just jot down the references and follow along on the screen, or if you can get your Bible out and flip quickly or scroll to uh, that's wonderful, but, but do jot down these references as we go so that you can study them for yourselves. I, I want to look at three things we should not do and three things that we should do this morning when it comes to politics. And to start with, don't attack politicians. Now, I don't have a lot of room to elaborate on the screen, so let me elaborate in, in my sermon here. That does not mean don't attack political issues that God has called you to stand firm on. You attack things that are straight-line issues with fervor and passion. You attack and stand for God's word as vehemently as you possibly can. Do you know social media is, is a wicked, wicked thing in many ways? For all the blessings that it could have, I scroll through my news feed, and instead of seeing stand for the unborn, which I would hope to see, stand for God's standing in marriage, which I should see, I see this candidate's character is this way or I see mocking specific individuals as opposed to attacking principles we attack people and can I say that is so ungodly I have a tendency to do this as well I'm thankful that my wife is smart enough to grab me and say don't hit send but I don't know how many times I turn and show it to Hannah and I say isn't this funny, you know? And she'll roll her eyes and chuckle and go, don't hit send. 
I find myself wrapped up in this because I'm so passionate about issues that I equate them with people, and instead of praying for the people and their salvation, I, I just mock. But listen to what, what Scripture teaches us. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for the building up, the encouragement as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. James reminds us that our tongue is set on fire from hell and we must be very careful with the words that we spew out. And oh, how heartbroken I am. Not when I see political posts. I'm thankful for godly, thought-through, biblical, political statements. But I'm brokenhearted when I see people attacked. So when we think of what we should and should not do, please, please, according to God's word, Be careful with what you speak and what you say about people created in God's image who God desires to save. Don't attack politicians, so the positive of that would be do pray for all leaders. Do pray for all leaders. And this is really hard because we like to pray for the people that we align ourselves with. Lord, I pray for so-and-so politician because... I can see the good they're doing and I know how hard it is and I want to lift them up. But Lord, heap cursing on this other politician. How dare they do the things that they do? That's not what the Bible tells us to do, is it? If we want to see change in our government, it's got to start with the salvation of people and it requires us to pray for them. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28 says, But I say to those who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. Let me ask you, have you ever felt abused by a politician? I mean, they've really taken advantage of the people. Have you ever stood back and said, boy, are they an idiot, and I can't believe that they would do the things they do, and look how they're ruining our country? Have you ever thought that before? I think we all have, right? So what is our response? Well, naturally, it's to to slander. Naturally, it's to attack. When Scripture says those enemies, those who abuse you and curse you, those who are are your, your arch rivals, love them, do good, bless them, and pray. There's one particular person in general, well, really two polar individuals, but... One in particular that I've seen so much hate spewed for, and by the way, they have done some really inappropriate, ungodly things in government. So much hate spewed towards them from from people who are close friends of mine, and I find myself convicted. I've never prayed for them. I wonder if we can stop attacking people and ask God to change hearts. Lord, pray that your salvation would be known. As we think of what else we should not do, don't needlessly argue. And that word needlessly there is on purpose because there's a time and a place, not for arguments, but for healthy, straight-line debates. But do not needlessly argue. I've seen more Christian reputations ruined on a Facebook feed than I ever have face-to-face. And I'm guilty of this too. I love a good argument. I like to think if I wasn't a pastor, I might be a lawyer because I like to argue with people. I really do. I would love to be uh, in a court setting and I would love to stand before a judge and I'd love to lay out a case 
Hannah knows this because I do this when we argue, and she gets so annoyed because, quite honestly, I usually don't have a very strong case, but man, am I good at arguing it, you know? This is what we do, right? I'm mad about this, and I'm going to put everything out there. I tell you, there's a time and a place for that. There's a time and a place for standing up for truth. There's a time and a place for saying, these are important, but man, I know I, and I'm speaking personal conviction here, I honestly, more times than not, needlessly argue instead of argue for the sake of God's word. Listen to this verse in Proverbs 26, 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. I love this verse. If you see something foolish online, it's okay to keep scrolling. Why? Because if he's a fool saying foolish things and you retort and you answer back, guess what Proverbs says you look like now? You become the fool. Now, just so we're not taking things out of context, I don't have the verse up there, but you can look at verse 5 in that. And it says there are times that you need to answer a fool according to his folly because if not, he'll think that Truth is a lie and lie is a truth. It's important to find the appropriate times and boy does it take some wisdom, some prayer. There are times that we need to stand up and say something and there are times that we need to realize this is not worth damaging the cross of Christ. Don't needlessly and underline needlessly argue, but do use your influence. God has given you a blessing of being born in America where you get to have a say in our political structure. God has graciously allowed each of us to have an influence in the workings of our country that many, many other, even free countries do not have. God's desire is that you would use the influence you have, whether it be in a voting booth or whether it be in a conversation, whether it be wisdom and knowledge that God has given you, or whether it be just just friendships. God says, use the influence you have to stand for godly principles. Write down the verse, uh, Matthew 22, 21. Jesus is telling the disciples how they are to interact with government. And he says, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God." In other words, the church is not meant to step away from the government, but to influence it. The things that the government has allowed you to do, or obligated you to do, do them. Use the influence that, through God's wisdom, He has orchestrated in the United States to make an impact on our government leaders. Don't needlessly fight and argue. Do something about it. Instead of standing up and being a social network hero, why don't you be a hero and put yourself to action? Our last don't is don't assume it's unimportant. Boy, if I, if I could count how many times I've heard someone say, my vote really doesn't matter kind of makes my stomach turn, even though I've said it myself. You know, I live in Illinois, so does my vote really matter? And sarcastic comments about, there's so many, does my one vote really matter? And we assume that, that our small little voice doesn't have an impact and an influence. And can I tell you, God's word would tell us different. God's word would tell us that, that he uses the minority to accomplish his purposes. 
God's word tells us when Gideon had an army of 300 men against hundreds of thousands, that God was able to do more with the small than he was the great. God would tell us when David faced a giant, and it was, it was insignificant the strength that he had, that David would overcome Goliath simply because God was on his side. Can we not forget that our actions not only bear the weight of our conscience, but if we're Christians, bear the weight of God's word. That is not unimportant. So we read Isaiah 1.17. Isaiah says, Learn to do good and seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. As we read this verse, it's a reminder that you have a responsibility for justice in our nation. You have a responsibility to correct oppression. You have a responsibility to, to bring justice to the fatherless. And you have a responsibility to plead the case for the widow. You have that responsibility. And I can't think of a better way that you can take that responsibility seriously than by being involved and knowing that your Vote. Your influence is important. But lest we think that everything in our government falls on our shoulders, our last do and probably the most important thing we'll say all morning is do trust that God is in control. I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God places leaders who I like and don't like in the positions that they're in. I know this because Romans will tell us in chapter 5 that it is God who orchestrates even the evil nations. I know that God understands fully the, the actions of my vote and your vote, and yet God does what he wants regardless of my will and decisions. That's why we read in Proverbs 19.21, many of the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. One of the reasons why I'm not a doomsdayer, because honestly there are times that I'm tempted to become a doomsdayer, is that I know who is in control. And it does not matter how dark things get. It does not matter how upset I am. It does not matter whether the plan that I have for our nation succeeds or fails. My plans mean nothing. The purpose of the Lord will stand. So we have a confidence in our government that God is in control. When the nation is going in a godly direction, God is in control. When the nation feels like it's crumbling morally, God is not surprised. He is in control. If there is nothing else that you take away from a political message, take this away. God is in control. As we think about how we are to interact in our nature, uh, in our politics, in our culture, can we remind ourselves that God is less important with, or less involved in the, the grand scheme of our nation and wants to be more involved in the personal decisions that we make? I believe wholeheartedly that God has a plan and a will for our nation, but can I remind you that that plan and that will involves people and it involves me and it involves you. This morning, the best thing you can do for your country the absolute greatest thing you can do for our nation and our government is to get on your knees, confess your sins to God, and say, Lord, I need to live the way you want me to live. The best thing we can do for the political nature of a, a struggling nation is say, Lord, I need Jesus in my heart. I need your word impacting my life. So this morning, aside from 
from what you're going to vote, when you're going to vote, how you're going to vote, can you just ask yourself the question, Lord, am I prepared to do all the things in this morning's message because I know my Savior has forgiven me and leads my life? As we close this morning, our invitation is simply this. Do I have my own life right before God? Before we can change a nation, Lord, will you change my heart? Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful and grateful that you've given us freedoms, that you've called us to serve you. And Lord, it really is a testimony to your grace that we live in a nation where we are able to have such a great influence on things. But Lord, we're reminded that as much as we can influence and change things, we never have the power that you have. You are in control and we trust everything you do. Father, this morning... I. I pray that we would have a burden for our federal government, our state government, and our local government. But, Lord, we're reminded that the greatest change you want to make is not in our nation, but in our hearts. So, Lord, this morning, we, we want to see a thriving country, and we know that's only possible with, with you. Lord, forgive us of our sins. Let us take them to the cross of Christ and ask that you... You remove them as far as the east is from the west. Father, show us how you want us to live our lives in the day today. Lord, your promise in Matthew 6 is that if we seek first your kingdom, if we seek first your righteousness, your salvation, that everything else we're worried about and stressed about, all of it, Lord, you will handle. Lord, let us confess our sins to you and trust you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.